This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Utopia of Usurers by G. K. Chesterton. Section 3. 6. Science and the Eugenists. The key fact in the new development of plutocracy is that it will use its own blunder as an excuse for further crimes. Everywhere the very completeness of the impoverishment will be made a reason for the enslavement, though the men who impoverished were the same who enslaved. It is as if a highwayman not only took away a gentleman's horse and all his money, but then handed him over to the police for tramping without visible means of subsistence. And the most monstrous feature in this enormous meanness may be noted in the plutocratic appeal to science, or rather to the pseudo-science that they call eugenics. The eugenists get the ear of the humane, but rather hazy cliques, by saying that the present conditions under which people work and breed are bad for the race, but the modern mind will not generally stretch beyond one step of reasoning and the consequence which appears to follow on the consideration of these conditions is by no means what would originally have been expected. If somebody says a rickety cradle may mean a rickety baby, the natural deduction one would think would be to give the people a good cradle, or give them money enough to buy one. But that means higher wages and greater equalization of wealth, and the plutocratic scientist with a slightly troubled expression, turns his eyes and pince-nez in another direction. Reduced to brutal terms of truth, his difficulty is this, and simply this. More food, leisure, and money for the workman would mean a better workman, better even from the point of view of anyone for whom he worked. But more food, leisure, and money would also mean a more independent workman. A house with a decent fire and a full pantry would be a better house to make a chair or mend a clock in, even from the customer's point of view, than a hovel with a leaky roof and a cold hearth. But a house with a decent fire and a full pantry would also be better house in which to refuse to make a chair or mend a clock, a much better house to do nothing in, and doing nothing is sometimes one of the highest of the duties of man. All but the hard-hearted must be torn with pity for this pathetic dilemma of the rich man, who has to keep the poor man just stout enough to do the work, just thin enough to have to do it. As he stood gazing at the leaky roof and the rickety cradle in a pensive manner, there one day came into his mind a new and curious idea, one of the most strange, simple, and horrible ideas that have ever risen from the deep pit of original sin. The roof could not be mended, or at least it could not be mended much, without upsetting the capitalist balance, or rather disproportion in society, for a man with a roof is a man with a house, and to that extent his house is his castle. The cradle could not be made to rock easier, or at least not much easier, without strengthening the hands of the poor household, for the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, to that extent. But it occurred to the capitalist that there was one sort of furniture in the house that could be altered. The husband and wife could be altered. 
birth costs nothing except in pain and valour and such old-fashioned things but the merchant need pay no more for mating a strong miner to a healthy fishwife than he pays when the miner mates himself with a less robust female on certain broad lines of heredity to have some physical improvement without any moral political or social improvement it might be possible to keep a supply of strong and healthy slaves without coddling them with decent conditions as the mill owners use the wind and the water to drive their mills they would use this natural force as something even cheaper and turn their wheels by diverting from its channels the blood of a man in his youth that is what eugenics means and that is all that it means of the moral state of those who think of such things it does not become us to speak the practical question is rather the intellectual one of whether their calculations are well founded and whether the men of science can or will guarantee them any such physical certainties fortunately it becomes clearer every day that they are scientifically speaking building on the shifting sand the theory of breeding slaves breaks down through what a democrat calls the equality of men but which even an oligarchist will find himself forced to call the similarity of men that is that though it is not true that all men are normal it is overwhelmingly certain that most men are normal all the common eugenic arguments are drawn from extreme cases which even if human honor and laughter allowed of their being eliminated would not by their elimination greatly affect the mass for the rest there remains the enormous weakness in eugenics that if ordinary men's judgment or liberty is to be discounted in relation to heredity the judgments of the judges must be discounted in relation to their heredity the eugenic professor may or may not succeed in choosing a baby's parents it is quite certain that he cannot succeed in choosing his own parents all his thoughts including his eugenic thoughts are by the very principle of those thoughts flowing from a doubtful or tainted source in short we should need a perfectly wise man to do the thing at all and if he were a wise man he would not do it seven the evolution of the prison i have never understood why it is that those who talk most about evolution and talk about it in the very age of fashionable evolutionism do not see the one way in which evolution really does apply to our modern difficulty there is of course an element of evolution in the universe and i know no religion or philosophy that ever entirely ignored it evolution popularly speaking is that which happens to unconscious things they grow unconsciously or fade unconsciously or rather some parts of them grow and some parts of them fade and at any given moment there is almost always some presence of the fading thing and some incompleteness in the growing one thus if i went to sleep for a hundred years like the sleeping beauty i wish i could i could grow a beard unlike the sleeping beauty and just as i should grow hair if i were asleep i should grow grass if i were dead those whose religion it was that god was asleep were perpetually impressed and affected by the fact that he had a long beard and those whose philosophy it is that the universe is dead from the beginning being the grave of nobody in particular think that is the way that grass can grow 
In any case, these developments only occur with dead or dreaming things. What happens when everyone is asleep is called evolution. What happens when everyone is awake is called revolution. There was once an honest man, whose name I never knew, but whose face I can almost see. It is framed in Victorian whiskers and fixed in a Victorian neckcloth, who was balancing the achievements of France and England in civilization and social efficiencies. And when he came to the religious aspect, he said that there were more stones and brick churches used in France. But on the other hand, there are more sects in England. Whether such a lively disintegration is a proof of vitality in any valuable sense, I have always doubted. The sun may breed maggots in a dead dog, but it is essential for such a liberation of life that the dog should be unconscious, or to say the least of it, absent-minded. Broadly speaking, you may call the thing corruption, if you happen to like dogs. You may call it evolution, if you happen to like maggots. In either case, it is what happens to things if you leave them alone. The Evolutionist Error Now the modern evolutionists have made no real use of the idea of evolution, especially in the matter of social prediction. They always fall into what is, from their logical point of view, the error of supposing that evolution knows what it is doing. They predict the state of the future as a fruit rounded and polished, but the whole point of evolution, the only point there is in it, is that no state will ever be rounded and polished, because it will always contain some organs that outlive their use, and some that have not yet fully found theirs. If we wish to prophesy what will happen, we must imagine things now moderate grown enormous, things now local grown universal, things now promising grown triumphant, primroses bigger than sunflowers and sparrows stalking about like flamingos. In other words, we must ask what modern institution has a future before it. What modern institution may have swollen to six times its present size in the social heat and growth of the future? I do not think the Garden City will grow, but of that I may speak in my next and last article of this series. I do not think even the ordinary elementary school, with its compulsory education, will grow. Too many unlettered people hate the teacher for teaching, and too many lettered people hate the teacher for not teaching. The garden city will not bear much blossom. The young idea will not shoot, unless it shoots the teacher. But the one flowering tree on the estate, the one natural expansion, which I think will expand, is the institution we call prison. Prisons for all. If the capitalists are allowed to erect their constructive capitalist community, I speak quite seriously when I say that I think prison will become an almost universal experience. It will not necessarily be a cruel or shameful experience on these points. I concede certainly for the present purpose of debate. It may be a vastly improved experience. The conditions in the prison very possibly will be made more humane. But the prison will be made more humane only in order to contain more of humanity. I think little of the judgment and sense of humor of any man who can have watched recent police trials without realizing that it is no longer a question of whether the law has been broken by a crime, but now solely a question of whether the situation could be mended by an imprisonment. It was so with Tom Mann. 
it was so with larkin it was so with the poor atheist who was kept in gaol for saying something he had been acquitted of saying it is so in such cases day by day we no longer lock a man up for doing something we lock him up in the hope of his doing nothing given this principle it is evidently possible to make the mere conditions of punishment more moderate or more probably more secret there may really be more mercy in the prison on condition that there is less justice in the court i should not be surprised if before we are done with all this a man was allowed to smoke in prison on condition of course that he had been put in prison for smoking now that is the process which in the absence of democratic protest will certainly proceed will certainly increase and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it prison may even lose its disgrace for a little time it will be difficult to make it disgraceful when men like larkin can be imprisoned for no reason at all just as his celebrated ancestor was hanged for no reason at all but capitalist society which naturally does not know the meaning of honor cannot know the meaning of disgrace and it will still go on imprisoning for no reason at all or rather for that rather simple reason that makes a cat spring or a rat run away it matters little whether our masters stoop to state the matter in the form that every prison should be a school or in the more candid form that every school should be a prison they have already fulfilled their servile principle in the case of the schools everybody goes to the elementary schools except the few people who tell them to go there i prophesy that unless our revolt succeeds nearly every one will be going to prison with a precisely similar patience end of section three